0: Not sure where it is there, but it's around there somewhere. Esther 4. And um, before I read, let me just pick up the story so far. So we are in the Persian Empire. Uh, Persian Empire has a Persian uh, emperor that rules. His name is King Ahasuerus or Xerxes in some Bible translations. He's ruling at this stage. Uh, and he has uh, deposed his previous queen Vashti and he has replaced her after after an empire-wide search with a a, a different uh, beautiful young girl called Esther. Esther is not her only name, she's also known as Hadassah, her Jewish name. Esther is a Jew. Last week we heard how Mordecai, her cousin, uh, how Mordecai saved the king's life by finding out about an assassination attempt. Mordecai told Esther, the queen, and Esther in turn told the king, or through messengers told the king, and the king's life was saved. And then instead of Mordecai being honored for saving the king's life, his nemesis, Haman, was honored. Uh, And this uh, sparked uh, the whole problem of the book of Esther. Now, Haman is angry not just at Mordecai for refusing to give him honor, Haman is angry at all the Jews and he went to the king and he said to the king, let's roll the dice and find out when we will destroy, annihilate and kill all the Jews. And they set the date to 11 months in the future. So all of this happens in January and they're looking at November when there's going to be empire wide annihilation, destruction and killing of Jews, neighbors turning on neighbors. And so it is right that we start where we start in chapter 4. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city. And he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young woman and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called Hattash. said then Esther spoke to Hathach and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say all the king's servants and the people of the king's province know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called there is but one law to be put to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live but as for me I have not been called to come to the king these 30 days and they told Mordecai what Esther had said and Mordecai told them to reply to Esther do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews for if you keep silent at this time relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place but you and your father's house will perish and who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai. Go. Gather all the Jews to be found in Susa. And hold a fast on my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I am a young woman. We will also fast as you do. Then... Go to the king. Vote against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Amen. And we praise God for the reading of his holy word. May he write its eternal truths upon our hearts. The sermon. Uh, is going to follow this outline that you can see on the slides. The theme is around this basic question about living in reality, what it means to live in reality. And perhaps you've seen the news this past week of Isabel dos Santos, the, the wealthiest woman in Africa. Uh, she uh, was the ex-president jo- Jose Eduardo dos Santos's eldest daughter. Um, she's, now been, uh, she's now been accused of widespread corruption, embezzlement and racketeering. Uh, And she is so far, well, these are the accusations at least, but but she is worth two billion US dollars. That's how wealthy she is. I think it's fair to say that she does not live in reality, not in reality around the world, and not in reality in Angola. In Angola, 30% of the people, there's a population of 29 million people in that country, 30% of the population live in poverty, on less than $1.90 a day. fair to say she does not live in reality. Uh, And this begs the question of you, if you're a Christian here this morning, uh, uh, to to acknowledge that there is at least this possibility that you too are out of touch with reality. And perhaps the first part of the service this morning already touched on some of those discrepancies. You've heard the language of the Heidelberg Catechism in the way that it talks so starkly of our corruption, of our sin. You've heard Ephesians 2, how he speaks of The fact that we are dead in our sin, in our trespasses. And these things kind of shock you. It feels like it's out of touch with your lived-in experience. You certainly feel slightly more confident than that. You feel a little bit more alive, that Ephesians 2 is trying to say. You feel a little bit better than the catechism is trying to say about your morality. But perhaps this text here today is drawing us in in order to give us a strong dose of reality. Reality of two things. Our spiritual poverty on the one hand, and the incredible riches that is ours in Christ. Those are the two things that you might be blissfully unaware of as you sit here this morning. And perhaps you are where I was uh, when I started to prepare for this sermon thinking of myself in a far better light than I ought to, and thinking of God in a far lower, dimmer light than I ought to. So, my first point is going to be we have to learn to lament. And uh, it might be worth saying at this point that when we look through the whole store of songs that the evangelical Christian world sings, and I spend much time this week searching songs out, there's no lamentations that we sing as a church. There's no lamentations that the modern church sings. We, we could not find good songs of lamentation. We've drawn out as many as we possibly can that might speak of lamentation, but there's very few of them. As opposed to the Psalms, by the way. The Psalms are full of lamentations, but that's a topic for another time. So we have to learn to lament. Let me see if I can help you looking at Esther 4, verses 1 to 3. That's where we'll focus on for the moment. Have you ever heard the blood-curdling screams of a grown man in absolute agony? If you have... The mere fact that I mention this is filling your heart with dread. Have you heard this? Have you heard a grown man just beating his chest, falling on the floor and crying? I can tell you that last night in A&E's up and down this country, there were fathers, husbands, and brothers who were crying like Mordecai, Mordecai right there at the start of our story. I can tell you that last night, even this morning, there are husbands, fathers, brothers that are crying right now in Syria, in Afghanistan, in Wuhan, having lost children, having lost wives, and having lost sisters. They don't need to learn to lament. Those grown men are on the ground and they're beating their chests and when you walk past them, the blood in your veins will curdle. It is a distressing sound to you. But don't think for a moment that Mordecai was used to what he's doing in these few verses at all. In fact, we get to know Mordecai at the beginning. He's quite good at hiding things. In fact, he recommends that Esther hides a Jewish identity from the Persian Empire. But, but something began to give way in Haman when, when, uh, in Mordecai when Haman uh, was honored instead of him. Something started to break through for Mordecai, who said, I'm, I'm done hiding. I'm done hiding the fact that I'm a Jew, and I'm done hiding the fact that the Agagites have been chasing God's people for generations. And now here is Haman, uh, and he is taking my place again. A- and something that we discovered last week breaks in Mordecai, where he starts to stand up and he refuses to bow down to Haman. But now here in verses one to three, we discover that not only did something stand up in Mordecai's being, but something has now completely given way, completely collapsed. All of his defenses has now collapsed. And this grown man is walking down the streets with sackcloth on, with ash on his head, and he's crying loudly, unafraid, to let everybody know that he is a Jew Now, um, Mordecai is developing, and we'll see as we read this passage, Mordecai is indeed developing, but his development is viral. It spreads. It spreads from just Mordecai walking in the streets. He's read this decree that all the Jews are going to be killed. He's walking the streets, and other Jews are looking at him and thinking, I'm also going to stop pretending. And they also put on sackcloth and ash on their heads, and they also, we are told, walking through the streets, Crying loudly, mourning, public emotional displays of inner hurt, so painful that they could no longer hide it. Now, it's these public displays of emotion that might sit a bit wrong with you, especially if you've been raised with the stiff upper lip, you've been raised to bottle it in, if you've been raised to keep it all in, to not show your emotion, to, to, to hold it, to, to not lose it, you, to, to, to hear those which hold on now. Fine, Shh. don't stop. Just stop crying now. Stop crying. Well, everything in you wants to cry. The, the world is a desperately sad place. If you've not discovered it yet, you've not lived yet, it's a desperately sad place. And many of the answers we get in our culture is there now. There now. Perhaps, like many of us, you've learned to merely cry in your pillow, to hide it, to bottle it. But the truth is, we have been crying ever since we've opened our eyes. The first cry we've made is the cry of being separated from our mother's womb. The next time we cry is when we're separated from our mother's breast. The next time we cry is when we're separated from our mother's hand. The next cry is the cry we give when we're separated from our mother's house. And then the next cry, perhaps the cry we cry alone, is the desperate cry when we discover that We're all alone in this desperately sad world. But yeah, yeah, don't cry. Like Esther, we want to send Mordecai some clean clothes. At least just keep up appearances for the moment. But Mordecai's crying, he refuses to take the clothes. He's forgetting about appearances Uh, And and at first, his reasons for doing so is a bit unclear. But as the text develops, we see that he learns how to lament. That's what he learns to do. He he learns to cry, in other words, in a believing way. Uh, And there's a difference between what Mordecai does at the beginning and what Mordecai does at the end. And the author has been so good at helping to show us that that Mordecai is coming into the full reality, not just the reality of the sadness of pending genocide, but the beautiful reality of God's sovereignty. He's coming into this full picture, and therefore he can do what the Bible tells us to do, and that is to lament. What is lamentation? Lamentation is when we talk about God and about what he's doing to us, to others. It sounds a bit like a complaint, we complain. Lamentation is when you talk to God about what God is doing to you right now. To moan and to complain, and to complain is something uh, that we are able to do publicly, loudly, and clearly to lament, to cry out whilst holding on to God is a lost art we'll need to learn how to do. And we can see it in Mordecai's life. You can see what's missing in his first bout of public, uh, public outcries. He tore his clothes, he put on sackcloth and ashes, and he went out into the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. It, it, it's a lot of things that he's doing. What's missing of what he's doing? Can you see what's missing? He's torn his clothes, he's got ashes on his head, and he's crying out loudly in the streets. What's missing? What is it that Daniel does when he's in trouble? Very similar things. Praise. Exactly what he does. He goes and he prays. And that is what's missing. Now, can't say that. Mordecai doesn't do that entirely because as you read the passage, you'll see that he does a bit of that in verse 8. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. He is praying. He's just praying to Asherus. He's not praying to Jesus. He's sending Esther to go and pray, to beg, to, to ask for pardon. Mordecai is developing. He's learning. And it's often been a case in my life. This happens in Mordecai's case. Mordecai thinks he's on top of the situation. But then God's people teaches him what to do. You see what we're told what happens when the Jews start crying. In verse 3, it tells us what the people were doing. They were fasting and weeping and lamenting. That's what they were doing. Mordecai was showing outward displays, tearing his garments, outward displays. But what God's people were doing, they were doing that, yes. But what they were also doing, they were fasting, they were weeping, and they were mourning because we don't know the Old Testament as well as we should, we don't know what the Jews knew when they read this book of Esther. The people that read the book of Esther, they would read that phrase, fasting and weeping and mourning, and Say, we've heard this before. We've heard this before. Where did we hear this before? It's happened before. Ah, Joel 2. That is where God tells us this. He says, even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. And rend your hearts and not your garments. The Jews were doing what Mordecai was learning to do, and that is to rend his heart. What does it mean to rend your heart? Well, the word rend means to tear, to rent the branches from the tree, causing great emotional pain as you, as you tear your heart. What Mordecai is doing, he's quite able to show on the outside that he was upset, but somehow he found a secret refuge for his heart where he refused to tear his heart before God. The Lord is not looking for the Lord is not looking for outward displays of anguish. He wants whole hearts to be rent to him, and that's what lamentation is. So far, Mordecai was merely moaning. I said I'll read Psalm 88. To give you a little sense of what lamentation sounds like in the Bible. I won't read the whole thing, but the whole thing sounds exactly like this. There is no clear hope in the passage that jumps out at you, except the first line. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry, for my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I'm counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. It's just the beginning of Psalm 88. Bible heroes knew how to lament, how to cry out to God about what God is doing to God instead of complaining about him to other people. And it's this lost art that we need to reclaim. Uh, and the way that they do it is the way that Bible heroes of the past have done it. They, they fasted. That's where they started. They fasted. This is what really helps them to feel the reality of their situation. In fact, in sharp contrast to Esther, who is completely oblivious and unaware of this impending doom, uh, she lives in luxury in the king's harem, eating whatever she likes. But but the Bible years of the past, David, Moses, Ezra, uh, they, they fasted when God's people was in trouble. They felt the desperate pain of their situation. They rent their hearts before the Lord. Towards the end, this is how we know that Esther is living in reality. She is no longer Isabel de Santos. She is now Adassa. She she has woken up, and she also fasts because she knows what's happening. So what's the application of this first point? Please learn to lament, to live in the reality of the brokenness of the world we live in. Don't just give yourself to rootless, fear-driven emotion. Give yourself over to the one who knew ultimate fear. Lamenting over Jerusalem. That's what I read this week in my reading. How Jesus just stands and he laments over Jerusalem. How I long to gather you. Look to Jesus. The the one who is not given to rootless fear-driven emotion. Uh, the, The one who cries for his friend Lazarus as he has died. Laments over him. Whilst yet knowing that he is the life and the resurrection. See the Holy Spirit grieved by your sin. Also lamenting when we sin against him, knowing that he is powerful, living inside of you, working new acts of sanctification. Give yourself to him. Read the Psalms. Look at the early church. See God's people in trouble and moan, cry, complain to God about what he's doing and cry out to him for help. Have mercy, God. Have mercy. Second point. Learn to make decisions. That's the focus from verse 4 to verse 14. Learn to make decisions. You know, see how Esther develops. At first, Esther is completely unaware of what's going on. But as the information comes to her, she has the decree eventually. She realizes it's decision time. She can no longer drown out the reality. She has to decide, will she be a Jew and therefore side with God's people? Or will she pretend that she isn't? And eventually be found out when the genocide comes. Esther has to make a decision. And Mordecai, like a good friend, like a good cousin, makes it starkly clear to her. And this is perhaps the line that helps you understand what he's saying to her. He's saying to her, if you do something, Esther, you might die. If you go to the king and speak to him and see what he says, you might die. He might not lift up his golden scepter. But if you do nothing, you will die. You will die. Mordecai is unflinching in shattering the secret refuge of Esther's heart. And this is what we must do for each other. You need to ask yourself, do I have Mordecais in my life? Do I have people that will be unflinching in shattering the secret refuges of my heart? Am I that Mordecai to someone else? No one can serve two masters, Jesus said in Matthew 6, for he will either hate the one and love the other. We devoted to the one and despise the other. And this is where our friend Mordecai shows that he's the real hero of this part of the story. He's giving Esther this choice. Uh, and, and the real choice behind it is, well, it becomes clear in some of the words that he speaks to her, you remember that phrase where he says to her, Do not think, well, for if you keep silent at this time, verse 14, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. He's absolutely convinced that God will save the Jews. He he can be because he knows that God is a promise-making God and a promise-keeping God. He promised Abraham in Genesis 12 that he will give him lots of people, lots of nations, a land, and out of him will a blessing come. He promised David that on his throne will sit one that will never depart. He knows God's promises, so he knows there will be salvation. The only question Esther has to ask herself is, will I be an agent used by God to fulfill these purposes, or will I shrink away? And perhaps that's a question that makes it more pointedly for all of us. Will I be an instrument or an agent used by God to fulfill his purposes? Or will God use someone else? There's an opportunity and offer here to be used by God to fulfill his purposes. Will I use it? Or will the Lord use someone else? Will I be the person who share my faith with a friend? Or will God use someone else to do that? Will I be the one protecting a marriage by giving godly but costly advice? Or will God use someone else to do it? Will I be the one sacrificing and struggling London churches? Or will God use someone else to build his church? God is at work. He promised this much. Will I be used by him or will I be a silent observer? That is the question. That is the decision before Esther at this point. And Esther is not without proof because in front of her stands Mordecai, the cousin that at first encouraged her to hide her identity. He is now boldly living for God, fearlessly living for God. God is at work. Will you trust him like I am, is Mordecai's uh, conversation with her. So learn to make decisions. And then lastly, learn to live with the pain and the joy of following Jesus Christ. In verses 15 to 17, we finally see what Esther does. You can easily overlook the word then in verse Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai. Uh, the, the then was preceded by a lot of back and forth messages, a lot of talking, a lot of considering and thinking about it. But, but now finally she is at this place where she says, go, I will do it. Go, I will do it. And although her decision is decisive and clear, it has two very distinct parts to it, which I think we can learn from. The first one is that she decides to embrace the pain, the sacrifice and the discomfort of what she's called to do. She embraces it fully and completely. And, and the way we know that uh, is that she, she calls a fast. She calls a fast for Mordecai and for the Jews in Susa and for her and for the girls that's with her, they will fast. Let me just say this as a sidebar. Fasting is not just an Old Testament practice that has remained in the Old Testament. The fast, fasting fits in the New Testament church. In fact, in this country, in 1756, the king called for a day of solemn prayer and fasting because of a threatened invasion by the French. Charles Wesley, uh, John Wesley wrote about this. The fast day was a glorious day such as London had scarce seen since the restoration. Every church in the city was more than full and a solemn, uh, and a solemn seriousness sat on every face. Surely God heareth prayer, and there will yet be a lengthening of our tranquility, he said at that point. The footnote then says, humility was turned into national rejoicing rejoicing, for the threatened invasion by the French was averted. Have you ever fasted? There's a challenge. You see. Not only do we not have worship songs in our repertoire that sounds like lamentations, we are prone to do this with one another. When you are down in the dumps, when you are crying because of the desperate, sad nature of your life, uh, we, we come and see each other and we pat each other on the back and say, "Shh, there now, stop crying." And although comical, it isn't. We tend to console one another with happy meals and with superficial smiles, and it'll all be all right. And we put on some ditty tunes so that we can just slowly get out from the darkness. And we pretend it's not there, it's not the Bible's way. On the floor, before the Lord, weak, I'm nothing. Without you, I can do nothing. There is nothing good in me. Please, Father, if you will not have mercy on us and on me, nothing will happen. Are you acquainted with the man of sorrows? Are you acquainted with the suffering servant of Isaiah 53? He's the man you find on the floor as you're fasting, as you're crying out because of the desperate sadness of the world that we live in. He was despised and rejected, a man of suffering, familiar with pain. It's very difficult to cry out to the Lord with your mouth stuffed with food very difficult to cry out to the Lord with your stomach completely comfortable as you only feel comfort in everything around you whilst our brothers and sisters around the world are suffering. Are you acquainted with this man and are you acquainted with suffering? Just like Jesus, there is not just the pain of this decision, which she is unafraid to feel, so she fasts and she weeps and she cries. But there is also great joy, and that's the other part of a decisive decision. In Hebrews 12, we hear that the Lord Jesus said, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For the joy set before him. Jesus was not a morose, doleful person. It wasn't as if he endured these times of sadness that was constantly dressed, he constantly dressed his face in this sad frame. No, for the joy he said before him, he endured the suffering. Often his disciples didn't even know that he was fasting. They've asked him once, what are you going to eat? He said, I've got food you don't know about. Jesus was feeding on the word of God. He endured many hardships, many pains, many sufferings, many suffering, sufferings, but he kept his eyes on the final joy. So there is joy, and there is joy in Esther's statement when she finally says, what she says, if I perish, I perish. Have you thought about the joy that she must have felt in that moment? For the first time, she's truly alive. She's truly alive. For the first time, she she is owning her story, her history, her people, her place in God's providence. She owns that and she owns her God that is in charge of all of these things. She's heard Mordecai say to her, who knows? Perhaps it's a time like this that the Lord has brought you to this place. She hears it and she says, I'm stepping out because God will deliver his people. And I will play my part. I will walk onto the stage of human history and I will trust this living God as I face the darkness of the world around me. There is great joy in that. There is great joy in owning your story, owning your history, owning your identity. You cannot live as a pagan when you're a christian you have to reconcile these two identities if your world is in these two compartments you've got to bring them together yes there's pain there's searing loss as people come to know your beliefs but there is incredible joy as you trust this god who says if i perish uh, you trust esther that says if i perish i perish trust the god that esther trusted you know the reason you can do this, and with that I close? Because Esther, of course, trusted God. The Lord Jesus, he is the one that didn't say, if I perish, I perish. You know what he said. When I perish, I perish. But three days later, I will be raised again. I'm going to Jerusalem and there I'll be flogged, I'll be beaten and I'll be crucified and I will die and three days later I will rise again. Not if I perish, I perish. When I perish, but when I perish, I perish for you. I take upon myself all the pain, all the suffering, all the darkness, all the chaos that you deserve to be poured out on you so that I can give to you the life that I have in abundance. Learn to live with the pain and with the joy of following this Jesus Christ. Rend your hearts and not just your garments. and Come to him. Let me pray. Our father in heaven. We don't know the reality of our sadness. We don't know the reality of our brokenness. We don't know the reality of our deadness, of our coldness, of our bitterness. Uh, we, we don't know, Father, exactly how useless we are for your purposes. And, and yet you've chosen to make us alive, to redeem us, and to call us to take our place on the stage of world history whilst we played our part trusting in you. Father, we pray that as we leave this place today, we will go and consider whether or not we are able to lament, to talk to you about the things that you are doing to us. And perhaps we can become acquainted with the man of sorrows as we read his songbook, the Psalms, and as we use perhaps Psalm 77 and Psalm 88 to come and fall down by your presence and, and become acquainted with sorrow. Please teach us how to lament. And please stop us from complaining and moaning about you to others. Father, please, would you come and teach us, teach us not just how to lament, but how to make decisions. Please help us to see what these decisions really are. It is a choice between being an instrument, an agent used by you to fulfill your purposes, or will we be a silent observer and you will bring salvation from another place? But you will do what you have promised. You have promised you will build your church. And we pray, Father, that we will play our part. And, Father, lastly, we ask that as we look at the incredible pain of following Jesus, we will set the same joy before us. The joy of being known by the man of sorrows who is now the Lord of life. Oh, Father, the joy of one day seeing your face, of of saying, you too, you've also suffered. You've also suffered for my name and for my kingdom. And as you embrace us with those hands with their marks still on you, we will know that our unity, our unity will ring out for eternity. It is through suffering that you have built your church, a God that is unafraid to suffer and to die in order to give us life. What a joy. This will be the foundation of our praise forever you did not shrink away from the pain of associating with us but you took it and now we can live yeah we pray for these things father we pray this for our joy and we pray this for your glory amen we invite you to now sing about this great god and we will do it seated if you're possible if it's possible for you